This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is Tim Matthews, VP of Global Brewing for the Canarchy Craft Brewery Collective. That's a mouthful, Tim, but welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Good to be here. Uh, this uh, We're sitting in the Oscar Blues Brewery in Longmont in uh, uh, nice snowy Colorado, but thankfully it's a sunny day and stuff is starting to melt off here. Appreciate you taking some time out of your week to talk to me about some brewing. We're going to talk about uh, brewing ingredients. We're going to talk about uh, the importance of things that brewers don't necessarily think about as being as important as they are. We're going to talk about building some brand identity among beers that might be of disparate styles and uh, you know, in different takes. We're going to talk about uh, some of the more creative and cool and fun and funky projects that uh, Oscar Blues here and the Canarchy Craft Brewery Collective as a whole are engaged in these days because it seems like it's a kind of a bright and creative day for uh, for brewing right here at Canarchy. Definitely. We have uh, branched out in every single component of brewing in uh, many different ways. Malt and hops usually were the driving factors, but now yeast has definitely uh, taken uh, also a seat in the front, and we are definitely having more fun than ever. Can't wait to talk to you and dig into some of these subjects. Uh, but first, is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GD Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. For 25 years, GD has led the way with innovative solutions for the craft brewing industry. Contact GD Chillers today at 1 800 555 0973 or reach out online at gdchillers.com. Mention the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast, and you'll receive up to $1,000 worth of glycol with the purchase of any new GD Chiller unit. Also, turn your fridge into the best craft beer bar around with a Tavor app. Get access to hard-to-find 100% independent craft beer from 47 states. Only buy the beers you want and skip the ones you don't. Ship any amount of your hand-picked beer to your doorstep for one flat fee. Yep, that's any amount. Download the free Tavor app today and get $10 in beer money with code BREWING. So, Tim, let's talk about Oscar Blues. It's been a long one. You've been here 11 years. You've seen it through a lot of phases. You've uh, certainly watched uh, craft beer as a whole, uh, you know, in, uh, explode in that kind of time frame. And you've kind of, you know, ridden it all along. But uh, you've also kept some core principles all the way along the way. Talk to me a little bit about uh, your brewing history here. Yeah, I have come to a realization that the after the year has passed, it is the last year I'll, I'll ever experience that brewery and uh, <laughs> what I have participated in and uh, get ready for a new, new, a new challenge and a new future every single year along the way. And it has. It's changed every single year since I got here in 2008, right when this uh, Longmont facility opened up. And uh, I, <laughs> you can say that... Uh, the blood pressure has has had its uh, ups and downs, but uh, at the end of the year, we are definitely very happy with what we've accomplished and nonetheless continuing to evolve and challenge ourselves in how we make beer and why we make beer at the same time. When you say that, uh, so every year you look at the next year as a whole different, uh, you know, experience for the brewery as a whole. You put the, the brewery to bed. Um, what have been some of those, uh, you know, major kind of turning points for you? Yeah, culture shifts, um, volume shifts, the new challenges in what beers we're going to make, uh, expansions, new breweries, uh, consolidations, the, the creation of the Canarchy Craft Brewery Collective. The you know, which initially had no direct direction whatsoever. It was just like, <laughs> hey, let's just get together and have some fun, right? And it was very informal. But uh, the formalization. I'm sure, there were a few other business conversations about that too, <laughs> and uh, you know maybe some dollar numbers thrown around. But yes, oh, yeah, I'm sure it was just as simple as some folks, you know, wanting to get together and hang out and have some fun. We'll call that the uh, <laughs> the very that we'll call that a consolidation of the, the consolidation talks and the like. Okay. So. Okay. But um, I love where it's come come right, to be, right. and it, it, we are challenging ourselves to create something that nobody else has ever had before, and to set a precedent and then evolve that precedent uh, from every year. 
Uh, in the brewing sector, it is uh, a, a major focus, and I'm trying to at least facilitate the, the needs of all the brewers to maintain individual identity, but it also um, create a collaborative atmosphere where we are sharing ideas and sharing creativity and bouncing things off each other, and therefore like a microcosm of craft beer, right. uh, but focused and directed in, with shared resources and such. I think that's a it's an interesting point to take that you know that uh, when in any kind of business you know especially when it's been in business for over a decade um, you know employees have certain expectations you know for how things are going to be and there can be a you know a delta between what those expectations are and where the business goes and if you have that kind of long standing well well it was this is wasn't the way it was last year um, then that can be a, you know kind of mental block towards looking for you know what the business needs at any given point but. Having said that, craft beer, uh, if you look at even the last five or six years, has been changing so dramatically and so quickly. Business models changing, the packaged beer market changing, the wholesale and retail beer markets changing. Uh, it is impossible to have a business strategy that works now, that worked three years ago, and then also worked six or seven years ago. Certainly not one that worked 11 years ago. Um, you know, the, the business as a whole is requiring constant pivots on the part of, of businesses operating in this sector. Uh, and at the same time, on the brewing side, uh, you know what what consumers want to drink, uh, what their preferences are, has has been changing uh, dramatically over that same kind of time. Um, at the same time, that uh, the access that you as a brewer and you know have to ingredients and new opportunities for creating new new flavors that are interesting and uh, rich and authentic. Uh, all of these things are moving at an absolutely crazy pace, keeping a finger on that and you know maintaining some sort of continuity through that has to be its own interesting challenge. Yep. The, we are definitely in a time where we must be dynamic. You mentioned the word pivot. You, know, you must be very agile in today's world. You cannot just pick one way to do things and then stick to your guns and go that way. You Adhering to tradition is one of the things you must do amongst uh, challenging yourself and challenging that tradition. So multifaceted approaches um, that are expanding your abilities and such are going to be the way that a brewer can maintain com, um, competitiveness moving forward. But it is competitive. I think it is much more competitive than ever before when brewers were able to almost float in some ways. But there are also different categories of brewers based on size. Sure, And sure. Uh, everybody who's reached a certain size uh, has to decide if they're going to maintain that size or lose that size. Jobs will go and presence will go and the entire growth plan will, grow, will, will go with it too. But as a brewer trying to create styles in today, uh, today's world, beers and brands in today's world, uh, finding where the pulse is, it is always, it's a moving target. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, that's why we need to do it all. You need to operate as a, as a big brewery, but also as a small brewery and maintain that connection to what got you here as a craft brewery and will always be the uh, uh, foundation for what supports craft brewing and differentiates it from industrialization. So uh, collaborations and interactions with the outside world traveling outside of your little boundaries and such, but also looking at what you do in-house and challenging what, what processes you have. And uh, having, having uh, groups of people in the, in the brewery that are looking at just one thing and then saying, Is there, are there ways to do this better or even differently? What would happen if we treated this yeast in a different way? What would happen if we use this malt with a different protein structure as a base malt compared to this that was more modified? What would happen if we use this hop that's not typically looked at as, as a aroma hop, as an aroma hop, or this hop that never thought of as a potent new world hop, but we peppered some in? And uh, what would happen if we looked at the, the full spectrum of flavor rather than just individual markers? So many different things, but the external and the internal uh, approaches to 
expanding your knowledge must be engaged. And such. Let's let's dive into that a little bit. I, I'm curious about this. You know, one of the, and I like what you're saying. You know, in that kind of regards, I have noticed in tasting some of your beer, and as our our uh, blind review panel has reviewed some of your beer, things like uh, Mama's Little Yellow Pills this year. Uh, the first time we reviewed it, probably three or four years ago, scored an 88. Good beer, you know, not just you know. Uh, something we wouldn't mind drinking. It's not something we're just going to, you know, go gaga over. Mm-hmm. Earlier this year in our lager issue, it was one of the highest scoring Pilsners that we reviewed. It scored a 98, mm-hmm. you know, and you could taste the difference in that. It wasn't that it was completely different. It was that it had, uh, there had been an iteration to it and some incremental improvements and an increased focus on how you improve the overall quality of that beer to make mamas more mamas and more of this distinct thing and the little better version of itself. Talk to me a little bit about the process behind that and how you thought about that beer and thought about keeping it because, you know, because at the same time that you're trying to improve it, you're also trying to make sure that it's consistently the beer that its consumers want it to be. Um, you know, you can't change it wholesale and have it become a totally different thing or else your hardcore customers who are used to it being a certain way are not going to go along with you on that. You know, it's the new Coke versus Coke. Like, you know, the iteration and that change has to happen in small, but you know, um, somewhat, you know, understood to the brewer measurable ways. It just can't be revolutionary. Talk to me a little bit about rethinking a beer like that. That is such a, uh, it's a craft classic. It's, you know, one of those craft pilsners that's always in the conversation when people talk about craft pilsners, um, adjusting that beer or changing that beer in some sort of way has to be a, a touchy subject around here. Oh yeah. It definitely was, but uh, first you have to ask yourself, why are you changing it? And the number one reason we changed it is because the brewers wanted to modify it to adhere to what we always called it. That being said, we always called it a bohemian uh, style pilsner. In 2014, I started digging in extensively into the quality of our European hops. Between 2011 and 2013, we saw intense variability, especially in the Sots variety, um, mainly sourced from, at that time, only sourced from the Czech Republic. So I dug in and uh, I found the Aramis hop out of the, uh, the Alsace in, in France. And we incorporated that in 2014. And it just blended it in. Prior to that, we had used the U.S. Sod Sterling, but only in the early early kettled editions to drive IBUs up and such. So Aramis, I, I know that one most from STS pills and, uh, mm-hmm. and Russian River. Was there some inspiration there, or was that uh, an independent, or were they inspired by you? No. I was just like, <laughs> w- which one came first? I think it was simultaneously. Nope, but, fair, but no, but fair the, enough, uh, fair enough. Yeah. I think, uh, I think STS and the Mamas are the two biggest users of I know Aramis. Vinny will text me and correct me on this at some uh, point after he listens to this. <laughs> Interestingly enough, um, and I think more people need to look at the Aramis hop, but uh, Vinny and I, like, we never, you know, we are simply professional acquaintances. We meet each other in the hop quality group and such, but we definitely were inspired from that hop in our individual sense. And, but interestingly enough, the, uh, the results have definitely been the same. They might have actually been uh, stemming from the same needs, needing something more from that Sots type variety yeah, hop. Yeah. Uh, the spalt hop is you know very similar to that, and the Alp- the Alsace is very similar to that uh, Zatz area in uh, Northwest uh, Czech Republic. Nonetheless, we picked it after evaluating uh, Select, uh, the, the spalt region, Tetnong, which is technically Tetnong Sats, and uh, also every single area they were growing Sats. Yeah. And uh, we picked Aramis, and that was 2014. But we didn't make it make the beer an Aramis-focused beer. Sure, We sure. still uh, drove it with Sats. We then also started looking at ways to make Sats, our Sats pellet, more consistent. So we started working with the Elbasala region in uh, eastern Germany, and then found that they were actually growing a Sats uh, hop that was very similar uh, to what we wanted from the Sats hop. 
nonetheless, this is, this is taking years. Sure, we, we, sure, didn't, sure. We, we didn't start taking hops out of the Ebosala until 2016. And after establishing that in 2014, it took years to add commitments and then get the hops and get the quality where it needed right. to be. And then we moved it along. But it wasn't until 2017 that we made the big uh, modifications. Uh, we still have the same yeast, Augustiner style yeast uh, provided by the Bruin Science Institute. And uh, we still use the same hop, Aramis and Sots. Uh, but what kind of sats? Where's it grown? Who's growing it? What profile are we looking for? What specs are we looking for? We've even messed around with type 45 pelletization versus processing versus type 90. And we still very much use Aramis. I even go to the, to the Alsace to select and dig in. And um, prior to that, I, you know, I even do Meinberg for other German varietals and some French varietals sometimes based upon timing. But when it came down to making the big shift in Mamas in 2017, it was about our objectives as brewers, and we wanted it to be more authentic. And I spent, I spent about six years now in a row in Germany drinking Pilsners. Let's just say I had a shocking moment, especially when I was at Schonram with Eric Toft. Sure, sure. And he just kept feeding me Pilsner and Hellas, Pilsner and Hellas all the day long. At the end of it, I'm like, oh, man, I'm full of it. If I'm going to make a Pilsner, uh, I need to be attacking this the right way. I'm just going to open up the copy of the best in beer issue of craft yeah. beer and brewing that we've got sitting here on the table. And there's a nice uh, six page feature written by our managing editor, Joe Stang on uh, Eric Toft yeah. and Schoenrom. There you go for sure. Well, and Eric has also influenced Vinny in the same kind of way. And, uh, you know, he's telling me that their open fermenters at uh, Russian river were a direct inspiration from, uh, from Eric's open fermenters at Schoenrom. Let's just say if, uh, if I was to build a brewery, I'd build a wing devoted just to uh, making both Bavarian style of beers, <laughs> because that's something that I've definitely sure, seen. Is sure. man, the brewery is just designed for only this yeah, right. and approach. It's 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 absolutely insane. But yeah, yeah. Uh, the time I spent with Eric uh, was a pivotal moment in late 2015, and um, in October 2015. And after that, all throughout 2016, I used a lot of the tidbits I got from Eric and other Bavarian brewers, even in uh, Augustiner, too. Augustiner happened in late 2016 and was the final um, push I needed to get Mama's expressed in the way that we needed to have it expressed. We've been using Augustiner yeast for so long, but it didn't taste like beer from Augustiner. So, <laughs> yeah. We, requ- we acquired process tips and how to handle the yeast and also water profiles. And that led to what we have today. Nonetheless, I also learned a lot about the role of Pilsner malt in beer and what you're trying to get from Pilsner malt. Let's, uh, let's hold that thought. And I want to uh, yeah, dig deeper into that subject of Pilsner malt and then malt in general. Uh, but before we do that, whether you're a full scale production brewery, a tap room or a home brewer striving for the ultimate setup, October can seamers has the small scale canning solution. They've proven the breweries increase revenue through to go sales with October can seamers and everyone loves to sell more beer. You're only a few clicks away from selling more beer. Just head over to OctoberDesign.com slash podcast. That's October with a K. And use offer code Jamie. Yeah, that's J-A-M-I-E to save $50 on any Seamer purchase. Also, balancing barley and hops is your expertise, and for Clarion Lubricants, food-grade lubricants is theirs. The team at Clarion knows that when it comes to making great beer, you're the expert, and when it comes to supplying food-grade lubricants backed by service-oriented professionals, they're the experts. Clarion will work with you to create an efficient lubrication program that helps protect your brewery. To speak with an expert, dial 1-855-MY-CLARION, that's 855-692-5274, or visit clarionlubricants.com. Clarion Lubricants, the expert that experts trust. So let's talk a little bit more about Pilsner malt then, Tim. Talk to me uh, about what you mean when you say uh, using that Pilsner malt to taste like Pilsner malt. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing about Pilsner malt to me is the, uh, the protein structure of it is very different. And uh, that's not just how you malt it. Only certain varieties can actually um, be led to be a perfect Pilsner malt. 
when you look at the Certain barley varieties. Exactly. Okay. I mean, Barca is fantastic, but it's been around on a long time. So brewers, while uh, like brewers like Eric at Sean Ram are looking for a lot of Barca, and at the same time, it's not the only barley variety they can use. But it definitely shows that brewers must and be— Barca a, being a heritage variety, uh, you know, an old, older style, you know, barley varietal that uh, Vireman has brought back to the market in, in a larger kind of way, or brought to the market here in the United States yeah. at least. Commercialized, and, Commercialized and, and, right. and people now know about Barca in the U.S. And right. people should know about Barca. But to be honest, it's you know, don't get romantically involved with the barley variety. <laughs> they're not supposed to be around for so long, but you should know what it is and know why it is and know it's to genetics, because agronomics are are a big big thing. But we should not ignore them, and we we should keep them around until. The proper air apparent is there, but we should be searching for that air apparent and learning to uh, communicate with barley breeders and growers and and maltsters to the point that we can develop barley varieties, especially where we live domestically, that can achieve what we're trying to get from that. It's not impossible to grow that barley variety and get uh, that it can create that Pilsner malt in any in most places in the world. It, especially domestically. We have so many different ecological systems in this entire country. We just need to you know, intensely work to develop these varieties. So what is it then? What is it about a particular you know, barley genetic variety that lends itself to good Pilsner malt? Typically, I mean, the germination just seems to be more controlled. The, it, it retains uh, some uh, incredibly diverse protein structure that combines with actually relatively high beta-glucans. You can't strip all the beta-glucans out of your Pilsner malt. And even so, you gotta look at how you, how you mash it. You know, decoction mashing is fantastic. And if you can do it, you'll make a great lager beer. Now, of course, a lot of Pilsner malt is only single decocted, but it's enough to actually create the modification of the protein and the, and the sugars. Sometimes you can go intensely with the triple decoction, but you will develop incredible amounts of melanoidins, and that's great for, say, a uh, actual bohemian-style pilsner, but just to create a little um, emphasis on a malt flavor that comes from the, those proteins, it's great. Now, the pale malt and paleo malts of this world, English and American two-row and such, they are made to avoid the need to do those steps in order to achieve extract right. um, in a single mash infusion. But uh, they also be, uh, have over-modified certain proteins that are not able to be retained in a, in a beer, which is focusing on the, an array of subtleties like a Pilsner, like a Hellas, even a Dunkel and such. But um, you, like, you're, you're looking for viscosity through protein and beta-glucan. Color is simply a result of making a Pilsner malt with a recipe malting that achieves retention of viscosity, but still creates all of the accessibility to the innards of that barley kernel that malting is supposed to provide the uh, the brewer. In that sense, are there some domestic barley varieties and some specific Pilsner malts uh, that are North American in origin, U.S. and Canada, that you find hit a lot of the same notes and provide you the same kind of uh, uh, canvas or pigments to play with as, as you do with uh, with some of these German malts? I'm very excited with uh, a lot of the uh, Pilsner malts out of the Northwest that are using winter varieties that seem to malt in a way that, like I said, retain a lot of the protein structure mm-hmm. and the uh, the beta glucans necessary. Now, that is beta glucans are all relative to the protein for uh, the barley variety and such, but uh, that's one example. Wint malts being used, and there are some other uh, other ones uh, winter varieties that. Uh, being said, are coming along that are also offering some good options. There are some European-derived uh, varieties being grown. Odyssey is one that I'm very excited about because 
uh, I felt like it molts in a way that is conducive to a Pilsner variety, mainly being grown in Colorado right now and molted by the proximity plants and in the Monte Vista. And then um, we'll see Synergy seems to be a variety that is also uh, based upon where it's grown. The American grown Synergy is also giving us great uh, Pilsner options at the same time. But you never know until you brew with it. Look, sure. look at the specs and then say, okay, well, then I'll, I'll go ahead and brew. And then just make sure the rest of your process will let that malt shine. Yeah. What do you, when you say ger- controlled germination, um, what, what are you implying with that? Yeah. The, the number one challenge of malt prior to five years ago was that it was, even 15 years ago, you know, malt was made just for adjunct brewers. Protein contents were massive. They were averaging above 12 at times. I mean, I think it was 2006, the average protein content of barley in Canada was about 12.5%. Now, if you look at the trend over the last couple of years, the, uh, the average uh, selected barley variety uh, protein is coming down over a percent. And you're seeing in that... Uh, that would affect the um, the overall specs. But one of the things that people have always been looking for in uh, the economics of malting is a quick three-day germination. And But that is uh, achieve, achieving a, a result of a really hot two-row brewer's malt that has high enzyme packages and a very high fan, and uh, but also good extract. But that's economics and such. Um, the Pilsner malt, you know, you, you have to be a l- little bit more patient. You know? and, and, and if I was going to name another great Pilsner malt, it'd be uh, Troubadour's Pevic. It's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's another one. But that's because it's, it's the value of craft. And it's like taking your time with this, with this malt. And that it is, you know, the, the differentiation is subtle. But, man, it goes a long way. And, but take your time with germination and control it in ways and not let the, uh, and not like let the, um, the barley variety hit the, hit the, uh, the accelerator and such and, and go way, to, way past its target and such. Sure. You know, this is, I mean, time is money though, mm-hmm. you know, whether totally. you're talking about, you know, the agricultural business or whether you're talking about that, the kind of processing side of this and malting or even in hops kilning at, at specific temperatures or whether you're talking about, you know, the brew house itself, you know, mm-hmm. that every additional day or two or three that, you know, what you're making is sitting in your production process. You know, that's a time that that same equipment is not producing something else. And so there's an opportunity cost to that. Uh, how do you incentivize then, uh, you know, some of these you know, producers um, who independent of the, you know, the, the market for what they do um, are th- purely thinking about their process. Uh, it has they you know, in order to let something germinate more slowly and spend more time, you know, going through the malting process. I mean, they have to be able to charge more money for it in some way, mm-hmm. but they're constantly, you know, having to deal with clients, large breweries that are uh, looking for the most cost-effective solution for something like this, and so mm-hmm. it can often be a hard decision to try to say, "Hey, we're just gonna," you know, and creating a value proposition for the brewer you know, coming out of a mall house. I mean, that that's a hard thing for them to do. Exactly. I mean, this is the long-term approach that all brewers must have with the uh, um, with their suppliers. You should have constant communication with your suppliers and know where the, the barley's coming from, where the hops coming from. And um, those interactions with growers are a huge focus for, for a lot of brewers, especially at Canarchy. We spend a lot of man hours and, uh, and airline miles and such, getting, getting all over the place and then actually having face-to-face conversations. So we're actually understanding what we're asking for economically. Because that's the, the most sustainable thing that we can do and in, in terms of actually achieving a product that we want that works for everybody. The, will we be paid a premium for certain requests? Definitely. But at the same time, it just goes to show that you need to make sure you're using the varieties, broadly varieties that are good for the grower and that can achieve the product downstream, which is why we spend a lot of time in barley development and um, with breeders and uh, maltsters and uh, growers and such. 
That's an interesting approach to this idea of brewery tie-ups. You know, now, you know, from from looking at it uh, at an industry perspective, you know, we look at breweries combining forces and, and joining up under ownership umbrellas as, you know, primarily a sales and marketing kind of approach, you know, that it, well, you've got reps out there in the markets, it's, you know, if you're, or if you're operating your own trucks and self-distributing, it is far more efficient to put more brands out there with the same kind of legwork. And so, you know, we look at the efficiency generally on the sales and marketing side, but you've raised an interesting point that there is also an efficiency to be gained on the kind of materials and development and validation and quality, ingredient quality side of the equation where you can work, you know, use that combined uh, buying power and the combined, you know, budgets from those breweries for ingredients and work more directly and intentionally with some of these producers, not just to produce exactly what you want. I mean, obviously you've got multiple breweries that have different kinds of approaches to brewing, uh, brewing under that kind of umbrella. They're each going to brew their own, own beers that are, that fit those brands. Um, you know, but quality is quality and, you know, hop selection is hop selection and being able to, you know, put those resources to work for the entire group as a whole, uh, has to, add some sort of certain advantage to this. Definitely. The number one resource in Canarchy is the the type, the, the differentiation between all the people that are involved in this and all the different perspectives. Uh, getting that all to sit, sit at the same table and be able to equally voice their opinion on that and voice the, uh, that perspective, is that's the challenge because you want to have direction. But the cool thing about this is it doesn't have to be just one direction all the time, especially in brewing. We want multiple directions at any time, but we want everybody to be aware of those directions and the reasons and the roots of all of that and then to feed off of each other and and the like because that will prevent any kind of stagnation and also push and challenge each other to, uh, to reach new levels. Uh, shared shared resources in terms of buying power. I think that's a little bit overstated, uh, but I don't think people understand it, it is a thing. But it doesn't mean that we all of a sudden pay. You know, You're not getting that, a fifty percent discount on no, something, right? right? You know, right, yeah. a couple of percent. But. but we we are able to take a different kind of risk at right. the same time, right. especially with contracting and outlooks and supply assurances and and the like, because we're able to. Uh, we don't have to book all of our barley. We don't have to book all of our hops because uh, shared in, uh, collectively we have so much that we have. Sa- it is a safety net. And, and such. We also you know, we have a major objective of using more varieties, not consolidating it into a simplified world. Meaning, we have forty different actively contracted varieties in Canarchy right now, and that is you know we all have the same account, but at the same time, it is it allows us an ability to be flexible and have options and not get tied up in every any one variety. Um, but at the same time, be able to invest in any one variety to the fullest extent because we combine our usages and such. It's an interesting idea. And if something takes off, uh, you know, if a new brand takes off for somebody, you can kind of move those resources, you know, to kind of support them and make sure that they've got what they need for that to take off. No, I, you know, it's certainly a way of thinking about this that I had not thought about in the past. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I find it fascinating. Now on the, you know, there's another side of this, we are starting to see, you know, more and more, uh, you know, as you say, interaction and, and uh, uh, two-way uh, communication with growers, whether that's malt or whether that's hops, um, you know, and especially on the hops side of the uh, ingredient equation, uh, having the right hops and having access to those right hops uh, and, and having them in a quantity in order to make the kinds of compelling hoppy beers that people want to drink today. And, and that, I mean, IPA is still 40% of the craft beer market or, or thereabouts, according to Nielsen and IRI. Um, you know, that, that kind of hops focus is still a huge, huge piece of, of craft beer. Having access to some of these harder to uh, you know get varieties is one thing, but also developing um, unique assets, you know, uh, partnering with growers to create things specifically for you is a whole nother 
piece of this that you were you were engaging in, are you not? Definitely. Uh, we, are, we try to be very involved with the breeding programs across the entire world. Um, we are looking, we're not currently part of the HRC, the Hopper Research Council, but yeah. we are, we definitely communicate uh, with them. I'm just trying to find time to do it myself, but everywhere else, all the private breeding pr- companies, um, the, well, the HBC, the ADHA, Steiner program, the, um, but also the, the breeding program in France and the Alsace and the, uh, the Hewlett Research Center in Germany, um, the HPA um, program, the Hoppy Research in New Zealand, uh, very much trying to be as integrated with those as possible, but also being in, t- in touch with what the growers want. The grower, we can tell them we want a nice peachy, piney, cedary hop, and they go, okay, so, I mean, how is this going to work for me? And, and right. like, but, um, so that uh, full agronomic uh, commun- conversation needs to occur, but we we have so many different facilities in Canarchy. We have an extensive ability to do trials, to play with things, to really figure out what makes that hop or malt or any kind of ingredient tick, because we have all these different ways to um, to use them and utilize them. And you name them, you name it. So, um, but we we travel a lot. We spend time before harvest, during harvest, after harvest. And we are constantly evaluating hops. We have a hops out of Germany, uh, Akoya and Solero that we're going to maybe evaluating. But it's been three to four years in the making to the point that we're actually going to make sizable amounts of beer with certain varieties. And these could be total flounders. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, we, we've seen enough about the hop, and uh, we've heard it. But enough. you've supported and encouraged, yeah. and financially committed to having growers produce enough of these so that you could make a beer. Mm-hmm. In order to get to the point, I mean that that's yeah. a lot of risk on your your part. Yeah, you have to limit that. Don't go out there and purchase you know forty acres just like that. <laughs> I mean, I've seen some breweries do it. Oh yeah, you know, fully sponsor hops, and then it goes under. And then I hear the brokers and the uh, the growers just bemoan it. So they get very that uh, they lose the enthusiasm that we need from them in order to push the boundaries on what flavor can be from hops. But I'd also constantly I'm trying to develop. think of an example of that. Would that be like? No, I, I don't want to name. <laughs> that's not. That's not the one I was thinking about. Okay, but uh, okay. let's just say uh, the HBC program has had a lot of sponsors okay, come through, okay. and they have uh, put twenty to forty acres in, and then it falls apart. Yeah. Um, ultimately, we're also not looking for one. What brewers should not look for is their own special hop. Don't do that. It, it, it's too much pressure on yourself. You want a hop that works for everybody. And that means the growers, the brokers, and the brewers. And in that pearl brewers, not just you, not just like even in our, not just Canarchy, but like all of craft beer. Because you want it to be proliferated across the entire industry so it's sustainable. Because you have no idea if you're going to be using that up and down. And if it goes up and down, you take a look at the price. It's going to go up and down. And that's not good. You want something stable that can enter the industry the, uh, from top to bottom, bottom to top, and um, deliver a, a very um, you know, benefits to every single step and every single player along the way. But that's why partner up. Uh, we're very much part of the hop quality group, and we participate in that. And we we don't we share information on hops with our friends all of the time, outside of Canarchy, inside of Canarchy, and we don't want to be. You know, it's good to be the first, somewhat, you know. But it, <laughs> yeah, it, it, but yeah. it's it's also good to share. You know, like we have uh, we established our strata contract years ago. And now we have all of the strata and people are just getting into strata. I'm like, of course, I'll share a box with you and go, go play, go tell the world. Because like, if we believe in a hop, we want the world to know and the world to invest because the brokers want more than one customer. But it does take sometimes a, a brewer to take a plunge. You just need to calculate your risk on that plunge and exactly what your objectives are. If you're going to take that plunge, go get some friends. And don't do it alone. I, I can I can see the logic there that you know as much as having exclusive you know ten or twenty or forty acres of, of some hop that no one mm-hmm. else is growing and with 
Uh, you're looking at like, you know, 1,800 to 2,200 pounds per acre. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, there's a, this can be a significant amount of hops, um, you know, but conditions, weather, you know, terroir, you know, all of these things are, you know, can change from year to year. And if you're using different varieties, there can certainly be years where your Oregon, Oregon grown version of something might, uh, you know, pop a little bit more than your Yakima version or your Idaho version or Yakima may, you know, or your Czech version versus your Elba salad grown version. Yeah. 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 I'm a big fan of working with brokers, uh, because they are an incredible resource for the brewer to mitigate a risk. And what you're risking is not just supply, it is also quality and consistency of quality and maintaining a profile you want. Uh, we definitely find, and Wayne does a lot of work for, he, he focuses even on just two hops for two weeks of the year and travels for Canarchy uh, to look at Simcoe and Citra. And he is bouncing from farm to farm to farm in Oregon and in, uh, in Yakima. He's also gonna incorporate Idaho uh, next year. Uh, we've been visiting those growers for you know four years now, and it's been they had the greatest harvest they've ever had. In fact, we selected over a hundred thousand pounds of Idaho growing <laughs> this year. But um, at the same time, it's expanding that. You know, we definitely have preferred growers. It's like over fifty acres just of Idaho hops right there. Yeah, yeah. It is a let's just say we are we are, we are good friends. Okay. <laughs> the um, yeah, and but it. We want to see other growers, not just yeah. growers to be selected, but other growers too. And while we do have some growers we have historically had on the table, there are always newcomers to what we actually put into the blend of our Simcoe or Citra. We always challenge that. Uh, and we always ask for certain pick windows, but at the same time, we spend a lot of time in August looking at what those pick windows mean because Mother Nature might change that pick window. So a date doesn't always mean it, uh, mean what you think it's going to mean. And uh, that's why communicating everything to the grower, what you're looking for, what you've seen from the hop that was picked in this window prior, and the grower can say, well, that was interesting. We picked it in that window because of X factors and then the first week of August that we saw at that time. Um, but this is just goes to show that, that it, even that is a moving target. And if you're having the constant communication and that ongoing conversation, you can make those adjustments and pivot and, and find uh, collectively um, uh, collaborating your way to that uh, perfect top that you want every year. I'm trying to think about this from the perspective of, say, like a you know a small brew pub brewer or a home brewer, you know, that uh, may not have the the kind of access to you know hop selection, and, you know, at that kind of scale, because you know the number of brewers in America that can go and do that, um, you know, is several hundred, but it's not, you know, it's certainly not most of the commercial breweries and and, and none of the home brewers in this country. Um, when you you know, if you were opening up a, you know, a package of hops that you had ordered on spot or that you'd picked up at a homebrew shop, what, what would your process be for, say, evaluating the quality of that and thinking about how you fit that kind of thing into uh, the recipe that you're going to make or adjust for that based on how it's expressing to you? Yeah. Well, first thing, you, you want to know where those hops came from as much as you can possibly glean. But Every single time hops change change hands, they definitely lose their um, their traceability. And traceability is huge. If you're not able to be there and watch the hops come out of the farm and go to the broker and then come to the table and then dictate this lot that's going to be processed with this and X amount and this blend, then you should at least ask the question, where did these hops come from? And all hops should have uh, some kind of uh, QR code or COA that it came from the original broker and processor. Get that and know what you and know what you have. At the same time, crop year matters, and uh, and you know so age matters. HSI is another thing that you can. Some breweries can actually check their own HSI if they have a spectrum overtometer. When you say HSI, you're talking about hop stability index, hop storage, storage index, storage. yeah, okay. and that's usually an indicator of the uh, um, just how the hop experienced the processing and such. You know, we typically like to be below 0.3 on most varieties. Some varieties get up to 0.32. Some varieties stay down in the 0.24, 0.25. They just have a better processing and such, the pelletization and the like. But 
I'll tell you now, anytime you use ingredients, open the bag and smell it. You'll, you'll smell some things. And be on the lookout for cheesy, uh, sweaty. Sweaty is one of those things, armpitty things. It's huge in terms of uh, indicating what the hop will, uh, the challenge of the hop downstream will be. We've been noticing that hops uh, have a lot of inter- interaction with yeast, um, but they also have interaction with barley components via the yeast, especially if that barley uh, is delivering a lot of the thiol precursors and excess that can twist the, the sulfur compounds in the hops. So, you know, just give that, give the, give those hops a whiff and the like. Look at the grind. Same time, try to you know, break up the hops in your hand. Look for the compaction. Don't look for the softest pellet in the world. Soft pellets usually don't have good stability. They're meant, they're meant to be used fresh. Uh, the grind should be relatively coarse if it's going to be in a tighter pellet, but fine if it's going to be in the looser pellet. And it, but you look at density and look at the grind. I, I, t- I tend to like relatively um, compact, uh, but not you know, medium density, coarse grind and then the like. Mainly because I you know, also look for hop interactions that can chew into that. And I want more from the hops to just from just... Yeah, not just uh, essential oils, terpenes, and alpha components. I want glycosides. I want polyphenols, especially nowadays. And um, I mean, it's. And you're uh, saying that the grind, even, and the density of the hops pellet can impact that in your brew house? Especially in stability of the hop, because uh, a lot of those components of the hops are going to change if uh, exposed to air or even you know, the, the bag, the foil is not completely. Uh, completely devoid of, uh, of any air, but always know if your hops have been repackaged also. Yeah. That's not a great thing. <laughs> so, uh, or if they are uh, repackaged, you know, there are certainly those that are, mm-hmm. you know, keeping them in an oxygen free environment and nitro yep. flushing packages before filling them and making sure that, uh, you know, those are getting to their, uh, even if they are broken out of yep. the larger, uh, you know, kind of component bales or, or, uh, you know, the, the larger batches that the, uh, that hops brokers are storing them in. Yep. Um, you uh, you mentioned a little bit about hops and malt interaction, and I'm curious about that, especially in conjunction mm-hmm. with the yeast. Uh, last week, uh, Peter Bucart was talking about um, the uh, uh, biotransformation of malt that uh, that happens with yeast in a way that uh, you know brewers are not necessarily considering. Mm-hmm. And I'm uh, you know, which is of course something that's been happening since you know the beginning of brewing, but. You know, on that side, I'm I'm really interested to to hear you talk a little bit about the way that you know the that yeast process actually biotransforms both of those things, and that the hops and the malt together can uh, interact uh, with each other. Uh, and that's a it's a curious idea that I'd love to delve into a little bit more. Yeah, biotransformation is uh, inclusive of any kind of interaction that that occurs in a. Uh, with yeast and uh, some one form of biotransformation is the um, the actual transformation of one terpene to another terpene and say I guess one of these citrullinol into linalool that's one example then there's others that are enzymatic where you actually have breakdowns the yeast will excrete enzymes that will break down um, glycosidically bound terpenes. So beta-glucosidase is one of those enzymes, and it will uh, break the bond between a, um, uh, a glucose and a terpene, and then all of a sudden sweeten and aromatically intensify a beer. And, but also just over, over, you know, give it that tropical flavor at the same time. Uh, there are other processes processes that go down like hydrolysis, but that's that's not typically inc- included in a biotransformation. But people have to realize that the barley barley kernel has been grown just like the hop. It's a vegetative ma- uh, material, and there are enzymes, and there are um, starches, and there are other components that are very similar to what's in the hops. Thiols and sulfur compounds are something that is the probably the number one thing that is similar between barley and hops. And there are precursors in barley that typically don't make it all the way to beer, uh, mainly because of the boil process and then the coagulation of protein that hop break true usually brings a lot of those components, barley polyphenols, barley lipids, even nutrients into uh, that hot tube, and that should be left behind. 
So we've been messing around with um, cold break settling and uh, and true removal prior to pitching yeast, trying to uh, see what that does to the, the hop flavor and aroma downstream because we're trying to avoid uh, some com- negative components that are locked into true bereave uh, cold break and uh, making it to the process where yeast is actively manipulated in that. And yeast health is a big part of that too. So if your yeast is too stressed, it's gonna pull things out and manipulate things in a way you don't want it to. So don't push your yeast too hard. (laughs) And uh, make sure it has adequate cell walls, have a really solid lag phase and uh, let it build up its glycogen stores and let it build up the sterols, so proper aeration, but don't push the yeast to go fast. Don't don't push it to, yeah, that's not a great metric. Yeah, you definitely want it to not take two days to get going and, and uh, 12 days to complete primary fermentation. That's also going to create stress in a different way. Uh, you can create stress where you give it too much of a, uh, of a nutrient and say, go, go, go. And you can say, uh, go, 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 but here's not enough of, of, of nutrients. Sugar is the number one nutrient you have. So barley uh, is the number one source of that. Uh, hops are too over certain. Usually we see a pound a barrel contribute 0.1 potato to that beer. Hmm. Um, and in, in today's world of three to five to seven pounds a barrel, you better believe it <laughs> that you are adding something that actually will skew huh. your alcohol. A totally different conversation. But um just know that the yeast and the yeast health will take whatever components and precursors are in barley that you that do pass through and will manipulate how your hops express even in your dry hop. And um, so we're, we're looking at stress, we're looking at ways to, to create healthier yeast and what that, what that gives us. But, and in the end, uh, fan and amino acids are a big part of that too. A lot of the uh, some of the tropical flavors that appear downstream can be derived from uh, amino acid uh, transformation, degradation, but that is, and that can be enzymatic, uh, to just basic transformation. Amino acids can become keto acids, that can become aldehydes, higher alcohols, and, and esters. Esterification, etherification, all because of something that came from the malt initially. So how do you look at a result that you would like to achieve, you know, from this kind of process and create conditions in the cellar and ferment through the fermentation process to help the, that thing along. Well, the in terms of actually getting the, what you want from your barley and your malt, look at how you're mashing and look at the clarity of that word. I've heard German brewers even say, well, you have a great boil and you have great hot break precipitation, then you can be a little dirty coming out of your mashed and louder ton and into your kettle. Uh, these are also high pressure boil systems that are incredibly efficient in creating break. And they're also the decocted. The decoction and modification in the mash ton uh, is a huge advantage to creating uh, the proper protein profile. But make sure you have a good boil. I think uh, underboiling and improper boiling is a, a major thing that occurs and then people struggle to make quality beer. You want to get great hop break. And if you do 60-minute boils, you better believe that you are getting the uh, precipitation of protein, the volatilization of the um, uh, the the unwanteds, like the formation of free DMS and the said stripping of that, and but not going too far. We've been doing a lot of smaller beers recently, and if you overboil, you can say you will lose a lot of the delicate protein structure and such. So right. there is a happy medium there. Nonetheless, if you go ahead and use kettle findings, you're going to precipitate protein. Don't overdo it optimize it, but don't just look at an optimization test. Look at also uh, take samples and watch it actually break out of solution. Then make sure what goes into your fermenter is clean. You don't want particulate getting into your fermenter, even if it's hops. But the thing is, those hops don't come alone from your whirlpool or such. They come with protein. And that protein can be a huge X factor and a huge wild card in terms of what goes downstream. And then it will affect your, your yeast. Once you're in the fermenter and you've got everything you want from your, your barley, you go ahead and make sure your yeast is getting in exactly the lifespan it needs. So you want to make sure you always have enough oxygen. 
I think it can't be understated. <laughs> Every single time we have a process here, we have a yeah. rule where we point to those scientists and say, yeah, a theoretical science, say, oxygen. <laughs> and then second one, number two is oxygen. Number three is oxygen. Then we will look at something else. But we will have to exhaust, uh, exhaustively research the effectiveness of our oxygenation and, and to make sure that the um, the execution was you know was proper and such. But um, and then in temperature control, proper lag phases, cell wall development, and sterile development, and then it should all just go from there. Uh, temperature temperature control, even in fermentation, not shocking the yeast is huge. Right, and then once you get to the all glorious moment of fermentation, of dry hopping in fermentation or after fermentation, just dry hopping period, know what you're doing to the yeast, because you're going to add alkalinity via the hops and potentially also via the stress on the yeast. Because we're talking about removing a break in barley material from the wort prior to fermentation, you're adding material via the hop material. Definitely make sure you know what you're asking your yeast to do. So dry hop in, in batches, not just one big plug all at once. Make sure that anything is in the bottom of the tank is out of the tank. We call it, if you quit, you're out. So anything that has quit and, uh, and has fallen into the cone, it's out. Yeah. Otherwise, because it's either dying yeast, excess true that you didn't get out in the first place, or other particulate, which is spent. Yeah. Get it out. Make sure that even when you add hops, make sure it's clean. And then watch it. You know, you need to continue to watch gravity. <coughs> continue to watch uh, um, other things like VDK production, stress, stress factors like acetaldehyde. And don't rush that crash because uh, they, what we see today, especially with the tops like Amarillo, you have enzymatic activity and uh, creeping and uh, you don't want to uh, crash it too soon because you can have VDK development. Right. Um, and also, well, if you condition it in your package, you can have overpressurization downstream right. also. Right. That's everything, right? No, that's Man. true. <laughs> I just, I just let you run with that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's uh, you know that's it's a uh, cool uh, approach and, and thought and insight on uh, you know on the way that you look at that whole process. Um, before we get out of here, one of the things that struck me as we were in the tap room before we, we walked back to start this conversation was the kind of diversity and approach of brewing that Oscar Blues has embraced. You know, I, I, I don't live, I live about an hour away. You know, I've, I've been here over the years a number of times, you know, and I've watched a kind of product focus here at Oscar Blues go from a pretty tightly compact one to a slightly broader one. And now I'm even seeing things like mixed fermentation beers and, and some really funky projects on your tap room, uh, on your tap board menu that I've never seen coming out of, out of Oscar Blues before. Talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, and relatively quickly about some of these new kind of avenues that you're pushing into and uh, some of these new areas of innovation for you. I can tell you for years at Oscar Blues, the, the number one approach was like, how do we make Dales even better? And how do we make Mama's Little Yellow Pills Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But, uh, and we, we've learned a lot, you know, to the point that we've gained incredible transparency on the craft of brewing. And it got to the point that, you know, a couple of us have pushed for years, like we need to do more and more and more. And let's, let's challenge ourselves here. And Let's uh, expand the identity of what Oscar Blues is known for. And it really, it really wasn't necessary in order to move beer, and, and therefore the focus wasn't there. Uh, but nonetheless, I, I really wonder if we had changed things, if we, um, if we had gone the, the path and the route of uh, creativity earlier on, and if we would have gained the technical know-how that we have today and the transparency on the process that we have today. Uh, nonetheless, we are very much engaging the, uh, um, all of these new styles with the same amount of intense, um, you know, uh, you know, digging in and that we've done in the past, but nonetheless, we want to execute, we want to execute every single style and add a little bit of our own inflection based upon our, uh, experiences with malt and barley and hops and want to know what makes things tick. Do we really have to use middle fruit here? What happens if we use Callista? What happens if we use Strata? 
What happens if we use this heat strain? What happens if we mess around with this kind of free rise and this kind of boil and the like? Uh, what happens if you use Pilsner malt here and not just a pale ale malt? What's the difference there? Um, man, the power of Vienna malt. So cool. Let's use more Vienna malt. And um, we looked at it, and uh, the identity has gone from just a, a few brands, and it's gotten less brand-focused, more just creativity-focused. Uh, nonetheless, it does boil down to our passions, and that's raw materials. So we, we love hops. So we are trying to create an, uh, a huge, uh, wide, wide array of hop expression. The Cannabis series, which currently has three and a uh, three in process, the tropical, the hazy, which is technically, if I was going to name it, it'd be stone fruit, and then the uh, um, the citrus. We have the devil coming out, which uh, uses a different yeast strain for an ale, the first time ever, because of our focus on yeast. We've uh, been trying to challenge ourselves to execute multiple strains in big production. That's not easy. No. Uh, especially, uh, but we're using an, a more thorough and challenged uh, propagation techniques that are definitely challenging our production team because uh, it, the infrastructure of how we handle the yeast is designed for uh, pulling from a cone into a brink and then pushing into, in, into the very next fermentation. So it's, it's technically cone to cone, brewery fresh, whatever term you have. But now we're looking at propagating up from like a 10-fold step so we can bring in and use our yeast labs a lot more extensively. And mm -hmm. the, uh, the, the Cannabis Double will do that. We also are working with the Cannabis Residentists, which we're going to tap on the, the, the tap rooms here in Colorado and Brevard here pretty soon. And then uh, also mess around with South African hops. And uh, we've been using those for five years. And... Uh, there's a there's just some potential to have now they're something. available to you again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just they weren't really available to anybody in the world, including right. AB. They <laughs> let's just say the harvest down there yeah. are still yeah. challenged and such. But um, the uh, so hops are hops are yeah. huge. We want people to, to know that uh, Oscar Blues can be a place you come to and you can get a huge variety of hop flavor, not just Citra Mosaic and Galaxy, which. I think I'm going to have one of those kind of beers later today. I'm addicted to it, like the rest of the world. But <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, but we want to work with the uh, the Stratas, the uh, the Grungeist, right. the um, the Enigmas, the uh, Matuwekas, the um, the Comets, the the Aquas, the Soleros, the the Aramis, the Mistrals, yeah. the Elixirs, and the like. And so, uh, just. Variety, big dark and malty is next. So we want people big, to dark and malty uh, is big dark next. Is next. I mean, it's been here the entire time at yeah. Teddy, but hey. and old Chubb. But we want you know we do so much work with malt. Let's That's just, true. I want to thank you for yeah. keeping old Chubb around. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm a big Scottish ale fan, and uh, I think it's an underrated style that a lot of the beer world has kind of forgotten about. And if you look at the pages of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, yeah. I do my damnedest to to bring you know try to bring Scottish ale back yeah. as much as possible. Well, but, it was the style the Bellhaven Wee Heavy as it yeah. was brewed in the early 2000s it's kind of changed uh, it's it's too clean now mm. <laughs> it was much more robust in yeah. uh, 2001 uh, that was the style that got me into beer yeah. and, and uh, we're evaluating uh, new yeast strains like uh, the Scotch Ale from BSI A78 is the, their catalog number and we have a, a barley wine that's called no, uh, Do Not Reply All for any little off this <laughs> joke uh, that's going to be pouring at the tap room that has tons of caramelized rye and uh, and uses a Scotch Ale strain uh, loggers, we talked about that. We, I have a passion for loggers, and I'm, I don't have a logger brewery, but I'm looking for every single piece of the process and dissecting in it and looking at things I can do and looking at what they do and why they do it. Can't do flotation, but I can do cold settling. I can achieve a very similar effect. Can't do decoction, but I can do, you know, I can look at my blend of Pilsner malts and my gelatinization period in my mash. I can't do uh, open fermentation, but I can control the osmotic pressure by controlling the fills in my fermenters and such. And I can't do um, yeast sieving, but I can do some kind of a controlled prep of the uh, temperature and uh, get that lag phase needed to execute. 
and I can do step crashes and I can do loggering, but I can't do it in a horizontal tank. So I need to watch how long I do it. And we can use our, our tools at our hand to, to look at protein polyphenol amounts and actual effects of the loggering. So we're, um, and we're also working with maltsters to, to create the malts that I think will drive this and looking at yeast characteristics like the, uh, the BSI 3470, which is very similar to the Schoenram profile. And um, now we have mixed fermentation. Uh, we, I have fallen in love <laughs> via with uh, trips to Anchorage Brewing and Tired Hands with, uh, I had a beer called Adaptive Distortion back in June. Their uh, tired hands actually is in, it, uh, is in the town I went to high school in in uh, Ardmore, Ardmore yeah. Lower Marion High School. I went to school with Kobe. That's that's his claim to fame. And um, they, I was there for a wedding for an old friend and had adaptive distortion. And I came back with such a vengeance that we actually <laughs> created a, a mixed fermentation program for sure. Oh, well, established one. We had been messing around with the culture right, for right. years and in like two barrels. And now we actually have footers coming in and uh, just so I can have my own table beer uh, <laughs> every single And then hoppy, you know, so we have a Citra Galaxy table beer coming out, 3.6%, uh, a solar system that uses um, like a sauternes and uh, sherry casks and the like for primary. And it's pretty tart, but it's uh, it's an example of hydrolysis and biotransformation. And it's like a lemon lemon head kind of candy. And it's, uh, it's beautiful, but... I didn't think I would hear that kind of conversation coming out yep. of Oscar Blues, you know, if you'd asked me that five years ago. And, yeah. uh, but it's cool to see you all embracing that kind of thing and, uh, you know, and playing in that world too. And not just Oscar blues, I should say the whole Canarchy brewery collective, you know, as a whole, um, Tim Matthews, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. It's been great. Uh, for 25 years, G&D Chillers has led the way with innovative solutions for the craft brewing industry. Turn your fridge into the best craft beer bar around with the Tavor app. October Can Seamers has the small-scale canning solution for home brewers, as well as production breweries, and Clarion's food-grade lubrication program helps protect your brewery. Uh, if there are three beers from the Canarchy Brewery Collective that, brewers, uh, that our listeners out there should absolutely try, what, what are those three beers? The number one beer is the Squatter's Beer, B-I-E-R, because that is one of the best American-made pilsners I've had in um, a long time. And it, it's just, it, it reminds me, I drink so much pilsner in Germany. And I, and I I had it one week after I just came back from selection in October. And I I had that little like lip quiver after I first tasted it. And it was, it was spot on. The, um, the other ones, uh, let me see here. Uh, I had a barley wine from Cigar called so the City called Wavo that uh, uh, was named after a, a good a good old pet dog, and uh, that one was fantastic. And then uh, I'm drinking tons of Wani uh, and Cannibalist nowadays from Oscar Blues. So um, that is you know, you know that, that is a passion project for sure, but. It, you're able to taste because uh, we use something like 15 different varieties across all the different cannabises. You know, 20 if you include the ones in and one And uh, one is you know near and dear because it it, it derived from Pinner, but uh, we created one in response to uh, where session beers are going. Right. And it's uh, it, it it's got to be drier and locale. So you see the brute craze, you see the, the session craze, put those two together. And you get one and, and the hazy craze too. Yeah. Creating a hazy beer with, a, with almost like very little amounts of malt and protein. Very challenging. That's a whole, whole nother <laughs> so, conversation yeah, uh, yeah. that we do not have time for today. But yeah. uh, Tim, again, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Cheers. I would normally ask people where to find you, but it's Oscar Blues and Cigar City and, and the other Canarchy brands. And uh, they're pretty ubiquitous and easy to find out there. Yeah. The very flavor of the week where we're, you know, we're across the entire country and such. So, and so am I at times. So, yeah. Well, thanks for sharing your thoughts on brewing with me. Cheers, yeah. Tim. Cheers. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.